If you're here for the first time, know that we're so glad that you're with us today. We truly believe that it's not an accident that you're here. Um, we hope that God uh, will work through your life today. Um, today we're in the back half of John 18, seeing Jesus' trial uh, with Pilate, the Roman governor. And as, as we look at Jesus' trial, crucifixion and resurrection leading up to Easter, we're going to see and be reminded of the simple gospel and its beauty. We're going to be reminded of our great gospel truths. Um, these are things that maybe, um, maybe you've heard these things a thousand times. But you know what I know? We still need to be reminded of them uh, daily because we forget them. I forget them. Or maybe, maybe we know them, but we struggle to believe them. Or, or they just become commonplace and they lose their luster. Or maybe you've never heard these simple truths that we'll see today, uh, and just maybe God will do a work in your life. And as we're in our 21 days of prayer and fasting as a church, praying for God to save, I'm praying that today, next week, and on Easter Sunday, as we preach very directly and more extensively about the cross and the gospel, that we would see a harvest of salvation, that God would save people in these 21 days of prayer. And then on Easter Sunday, we'd see many people go through the waters of baptism. And then on Easter Sunday, it would just be a total dunk fest. That's what I'm praying for. Okay, so if you walked in today and you're not a Christian, and if you're, or if you're not sure if you're a Christian, or maybe you are, or how, uh, how, maybe how I was most of my life, and you thought you are a Christian, and then you realize, oh wait, I'm actually not a Christian. I'm praying that today God would open up your eyes for you to see what it looks like to follow Jesus and for him to be king of your life. And then on Easter Sunday, I'm praying uh, you would go through the waters of baptism, declaring to the world what God has done in your heart and life. And so New City Church, I want to invite you to be praying with me over these next three weeks that we would see God do something uh, that we can't explain other than a total work of the spirit of God that God would open up blind eyes and see God move in power and save. Again, the consistent thing that God has led me to pray for is that we would see a harvest of salvation, that Easter Sunday would be a day of visibly seeing the Lord's goodness and power. And so I wanna invite you as a church to be praying and pleading to God with me, to be praying for God to do a mighty work among us. We're praying for salvation and for God to open up our eyes yet again to the beauty of the simple gospel. John 18, 19, and 20 are texts for the next three weeks. They're more story-like. And so we're just gonna simply tell the story and pray that the story of the cross will captivate our hearts and souls in a fresh new way. So just as a quick history lesson, uh, before we jump into our text, 350 years before Jesus, there was a guy named Alexander the Great, and through many uh, extensive military conquests, he created the largest empire the ancient world had ever seen. And one of the unique things that he did during his reign is he merged cultures together. He allowed different cultures and groups of people with different backgrounds to coexist in the same place, which we still see 350 years later during Jesus' time. And so as we'll see today in our text, we have the nation of Israel uh, on one side and the Roman government uh, together on the other side. They're in the same place with two different sets of rules and laws and customs. You know, last week we saw Caiaphas, the high priest for the nation of Israel and his interaction with Jesus. We saw him questioning Jesus, the high priest. Uh, he was supposed to be a mediator between God and God's people. But during Jesus' time, the high priest, as we saw last week, he acted more of a political role, acting as a mediator between the people of Israel and the Roman government. 
And so we've got Caiaphas, the high priest, over the nation of Israel and the Jews trying to follow the Mosaic law and the religious customs, and then also the Roman governor, Pilate, over the Gentiles with their Greco-Roman culture with all the Greek gods and goddesses uh, and their warlike conquering mentality. And so we've got these two different political figureheads with the Israel high priest and the Roman governor with their own agenda and biases interacting with Jesus. It's kind of like when the grandparents come into town. You know, the grandkids, they have, different, they have two different authorities, the parents and the grandparents. But at the end of the day, the grandparents do what they want and they spoil the kids and then they send them back home. Amen. So maybe in a much more complex and twisted way to what's going on here, we're gonna see where the Jews know the rules and the laws, but they go to their other authority for them to do what they know that they can't do. Kind of like when the kids go to the grandparents to get what they want. I mean, if you remember from a few weeks ago, back in John 12, which is only a couple days earlier to where we are now in John 18, Jesus just came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And the nation of Israel, they were waving palm branches and shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even uh, the king of Israel. And so let's just imagine the political tension here. We've got the high priest trying to keep the peace, and we've got the Roman governor trying to keep his rule, and Jesus is coming in, and half the city is saying, Jesus is our king. Praise King Jesus. And remember last week, we saw Jesus interact with those who were supposed to be on Jesus' side. They were supposed to be on Team Jesus, but they betrayed him, they denied him, and they questioned him. And this week, we see Jesus interacting with those who were not in Jesus' corner, He's interacting with the Roman government and their officials. You know, this week, Jesus, he's on trial with Pilate. But this entire interaction, we're gonna see Jesus as cool as a cucumber, just totally unfazed by all of it. And why? Because as we'll see, as our main idea, Jesus is the king of an eternal kingdom. That's where we're going today. Jesus is the king of an eternal kingdom. He's not phased by these earthly kingdoms that he knows will rise and fall because he knows he's the king of a different kingdom. Jesus' kingdom is far bigger and it's far better and far more reaching and far more expansive than these earthly kingdoms he's interacting with could ever imagine. Jesus' kingdom, it lasts forever and ever. It's eternal. And this interaction and trial and mocking that he'll go through was the price that Jesus paid for his eternal and his far better and eternal kingdom. It's forever kingdom. The price that Jesus paid to be the king of his forever kingdom was great, but as we'll see, he was more than willing to pay the price. Why? Because he knew what was on the other side. Jesus knew that on the other side of this, of the cross, in Jesus' forever ever kingdom, there would be no more crying, no more pain, no more suffering or loneliness, no more fear or worry or wars or tension. Jesus knew there would be a forever place for everyone in his eternal kingdom, and Jesus knew that he would be the king of that kingdom. Now, let's just think about this. You can always tell what people value uh, based off of what they'll endure or pay to receive or achieve something. I mean, how many times have you walked into a store looking for something, um, you don't find it, and on the way out, uh, you see something like you kind of want, like a pack of gum, maybe, a simple, small pack of gum, and then you see a long line, you're like, nope, I'm not gonna stand in that line for 20 minutes of my time, and so you put that piece of pack of gum back down and you walk out the door. But on the other side, you know who would wait in that line for 20 minutes for a pack of gum? My five-year-old daughter. 
Like the homegirl, she loves her some gum. Like she's always asking for it. Every time we get into the car, it's like an immediate trigger for her. Like, can I have some gum? Daddy, can I have some gum? Dad, can I please, please, please have some gum? And I'm like, sorry, baby, I don't have any gum in my car. That's in your mommy's car. When we go to the store, she sees the gum and she wants the gum and she would do just about anything to buy that pack of gum. Almost every time though, I say no. Unless I'm taking my sweet Millie on a date. And then of course I say yes. Because I'm training my girls to be spoiled on dates. Like I'll stand in line for 20 minutes on a date and spoil that girl to death. But only on dates. Every other time I say no. But you know who will do it every other time? The grandparents right? Why would someone stand in line for 20 minutes and endure the waiting just to buy a pack of gum? Not because they value the gum, but because they value the five-year-old that wants the pack of gum. Again, what we're willing to endure and pay shows what we value. If you look at your bank account, I learned what we value really quick. Well, today we're going to see more of what Jesus endured. We're going to begin to see the price he paid, but as we get into it, we'll see what motivated him to endure and pay that price. We're gonna see several things in our text, and each one is surrounded by these simple gospel truths that we need to remember today. And collectively, each of these truths provide a doorway into God's forever kingdom. And these three points and truths we'll see today are number one, Jesus was found guiltless for his kingdom. Jesus was exchanged for his kingdom. And number three, Jesus was crucified for his kingdom. Jesus had his kingdom in view, and not just his kingdom from a theoretical government standpoint, but more specifically, those whom he would be king over. Because it's one thing to be called a king, but I think we can agree that a king is not needed in a kingdom if there are not people in the kingdom. And as we've said, Jesus' kingdom will be a kingdom of peace, an everlasting and an eternal peace where evil and sin, they will not exist. But it won't only be Jesus. As we just sang, Jesus' kingdom will be filled with people from every tribe and language and people and nation from all over the world. It'll include many of us here today that claim Jesus as our king. And we long for that day when we walk through the doorway of God's forever kingdom. And as I said earlier, I'm praying over these next three weeks that we'll see more people respond in faith and walk through the doorway entering into God's forever kingdom where Jesus will be their forever king. But, the, but, the true, but, but true faith is required to enter. And so as we walk through our passage, we're gonna spend several minutes just kind of walking through the text, telling the story, pointing out several great truths along the way. And then um, we'll, see the, we'll see those three gospel truths pretty quickly. And then on the back end, we're gonna talk more about God's forever king, kingdom and what it means for us today. But I do want us uh, to see before we dive into our text, I wanna ask, which kingdom are you living for? Which kingdom are you living for? Jesus's kingdom or your own earthly kingdom? Like, who's the ruler of your life? Who leads your life? Is it you or is it Jesus? And I know this seems like a hard concept or maybe strange, especially in our American culture that tells us that we're in charge of our life and our destiny. But let me tell you, um, real, true, biblical Christianity doesn't add a side of Jesus to our life. No, real Christianity makes Jesus the king and the ruler of our life. Because let me tell you, a hard truth. Like we can't have two kings. It just doesn't work. 
Either Jesus is king of our life or we are the king of our life. And in order to enter into Jesus's kingdom, Jesus needs to be the king of our life. So let's read several verses in John 18. We're gonna start in verse 28. As we kind of pick up from where we were last week, it just as a really quick re- uh, reminder, last week we saw Judas betray Jesus um, and told the soldiers where Jesus would be and then the soldiers arrested Jesus. They took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where they saw Caiaphas question Jesus and then Jesus, Jesus' other disciple, Peter, he denied Jesus three times. And we pick up in verse 28. We'd see this entire trial with Jesus and Pilate. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, he would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, Is it not lawful for us to put anyone to death? This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So as we just read, they left the high priest's house with Jesus arrested by the soldiers, and they went to see the Roman governor, Pilate, kind of doing their whole political dance with these two different authorities and their two different rulers. And what I find interesting is that they didn't go into Pilate's house because these soldiers, they wanted to stay undefiled and pure and remain clean and pure so they could take the Passover meal, a religious custom. You know, this is really interesting because the reason they didn't go into Pilate's house was because Pilate was not a Jew. Pilate was a Gentile, and I kid you not, it was because Pilate's house as a Gentile, it did not have a roof over it. And according to a book called the Mishnah that interpreted the law, it would have supposedly made these soldiers unclean. And so these soldiers and and the officials that arrested Jesus, they knew their need to be made clean. They understood the concept of sin and disobedience. But as we see here, they were way off. They thought they were remaining pure by not going into a house that had a roof and by doing religious rituals and obeying the interpretation of the rules. And what's ironic about this is that they were thinking this and trying to keep their religious rituals while they were trying to arrest Jesus and have Jesus killed. They thought going into Pilate's house would defile them, but yet not crucifying Jesus, the Son of God. They thought crucifying Jesus would be a way to honor God and dishonor Jesus because Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, and they didn't like that. And Pilate, he respected these soldiers and officials and their desire to stay ritually undefiled. And and Pilate stepped outside. He talked to them and said, what accusations do you bring against this man speaking of Jesus? And they assumed that he, Jesus had done evil, but they didn't have uh, concrete evidence. They just simply did not like what Jesus was saying about himself. They didn't like Jesus' claims. So Pilate said to these soldiers, go judge him by your own law. Because Pilate, as a politician, didn't want to get in the middle of this. Pilate was trying to stay neutral. But the Jews were like, oh wait, uh, we're not actually allowed to kill anybody. Uh, So we need you, Pilate, to kill him. Kind of like when the kids go to the grandparents and get ice cream and not asking their parents. Right, it's no fault of the grandparents. The kids just know all the loopholes. (laughs) Again, these soldiers and officials, they want to remain pure by religious tradition, but little do they know tradition and rules don't make, make them clean and pure. It's only Jesus that can make a person clean and pure before God. 
You know, the, 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 the one they're trying to kill, Jesus, he's the only one that can make them clean. Which leads us to ask the question, how are we made pure and undefiled and clean through Jesus? And what we need to understand is that it's not, this is really important, it's not by religious rituals and traditions that we're made, that we are made clean and pure. That's not how we're made clean and pure. The way that we're made clean and pure is not, listen, it's not by reading our Bibles and coming to church and singing worship songs and taking communion and fasting and giving money and making sacrifices. These things do not make us pure before God. You know what? These things also don't make us Christians. Going to church does not make you a Christian. Reading your Bible does not make you a Christian. Celebrating Christmas and Easter does not make you a Christian. You know what else does not make you a Christian and doesn't make you pure and holy before the Lord? Baptism. We love baptism here at New City. It's a massive celebration for us as a church. Like we scream and we shout and we cheer. We love baptism. But please hear me on this. Baptism does not save you and it does not cleanse you. Baptism is simply an outward expression showing what God has done inside of you. Baptism is nothing more than a symbol of salvation and is an act of obedience. Like God commands it and so we do it. But it does not save us or cleanse us. It's simply telling the world that we're a new creation. It's telling the world that Jesus is the king of our life. And so if you came in today and you don't know how to be made clean and pure, I've got good news. The good news of the simple gospel is that by believing in Jesus, that the blood he shed at the cross paid the penalty for your sin. And when you believe in Jesus, he then, he washes you white as snow. I mean, the scriptures tell us, like like making you and me totally, that we're totally clean and pure before God. Again, Jesus makes us clean and pure before God. The religious rituals, they didn't make the soldiers pure. No, the only way for those soldiers and officials to be completely pure and undefiled would be through Jesus, the one that they turned over to die. You know what? Jesus knew it. Jesus, he knew his own death was necessary, and so he willingly proceeded with it. And why? Because Jesus, he had his future kingdom in view. Jesus willingly went to the cross because he had his future kingdom in view. And so I want want you to remember At this moment, Jesus, he had access to all the angels in the universe. He just raised a dead man to life. He's healed the sick. He's been walking uh, openly in the temple, easily getting out of hard situations time after time. Jesus, he could have easily escaped this entire situation, but he didn't do that this time. And why? Because he had his future kingdom of peace in view. He had people from all over the world on his mind. He he was wanting people from every tribe and nation in his kingdom. And you know who else he wanted? You know who else was on his mind? You and me. Each of us. He saw you and me in our dirty, impure state, covered by the filth of our sin. And he saw you and me, and he had compassion on us. And he wanted us to be in his forever kingdom. And so Jesus, he endured and he continued because he loves us. Jesus would do anything to have you with him forever in his eternal kingdom of peace. So let's keep reading to continue telling the story of this trial with Pilate. Look at verse 33. 
So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, I, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And so I love this interaction because Pilate, he's trying to figure out like what in the world to do. He's trying to stay neutral and stay out of it, but he's struggling a little bit. Because just think about this, where, where Pilate is in this situation. He knows that some people think Jesus is the Messiah. He knows that these, these, all these people just waved their national symbol of the palm branches a few days ago. And if this is true, Pilate knows it puts him in quite the pickle. So Pilate goes back to Jesus and asks him, like, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus is like, are you saying this about me or are others saying this about me? And, and Pilate's like, man, I don't know. Like, I'm not a Jew. Your own nation and people and the high priests, they sent you to me. Like, can you just tell me what you've done? It's like Pilate's just sitting here scratching his head. He's trying to figure out what to do. And I love what Jesus says back. Look what he says in verse 36. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. So just to point out, I love how Jesus doesn't give a simple answer, but a profound one. He's been doing this all along. People ask a simple question and he gives a layered response. Now out of this entire interaction with Pilate and Jesus and the officials, the only thing Jesus talks about is his kingdom. That his kingdom is not of his world. That's the only thing that Jesus is talking about. Which is why our main idea is what it is, that Jesus is the king of an eternal kingdom. Jesus was not a political king in this world like Pilate was asking. He was a king of another world. Look at verse 37 to continue the story. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? What a profound question from Pilate. What is truth? Which seems like a great starting point for an apologetics debate and a great topic to tackle, but Jesus, he actually never answers the question. Likely because I think Pilate in this interaction was being sarcastic. But in this encounter, what Jesus did say was why he came into the world. That he was born to be the king of his kingdom and to bear witness to the truth. And although Jesus doesn't answer Pilate's question here, he did answer the question back speaking with his disciples in John 14. Jesus told his disciples several hours before this that he, Jesus, he is the truth. That Jesus came from God to reveal to the world what is true. Jesus came to tell the world about God and sin and to share with the world God's plan and purpose and how we were made for an intimate relationship with God. And although Pilate did not know what Jesus meant when he asked what is truth, the very next thing that Pilate did say, it was true, it was very true. But even Pilate didn't understand the weight of what he said. Look at the second half of verse 38. It says of Pilate, after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. Pilate said Jesus was guiltless. Pilate said he found no guilt in Jesus. He was searching and looking to see if Jesus was guilty, but Pilate found nothing. Which leads us to our first point. Number one, Jesus was found guiltless for his kingdom. You know, the irony here. It's thick. Like Jesus is under trial with the Roman governor and the Roman, Roman governor says he's not guilty. 
But the irony that plays out here was that he wasn't only not guilty before the Roman government, but he was also guiltless before God. Because Jesus, he never sinned, he never disobeyed, which was all part of God's plan. God sent Jesus, his son, down to earth and to live a sinless and guiltless life. And even the Roman governor found him not guilty when on trial. And we think about this truth that Jesus was sinless and guiltless, that he was perfectly clean and pure. We need to know that being guiltless and sinless and perfectly pure and clean is a requirement for entering God's kingdom. Like in order for us to be in God's forever kingdom, we must be clean and pure. In order to be a Christian and a child of God, we have to be clean and pure and without sin. It's required. And here Jesus as the guiltless king of his pure and sinless kingdom. It was true for Jesus and it's also true for the people in his kingdom. Like we must get this. In order to enter and to live and dwell in Jesus' kingdom, in order to be a Christian, we have to be guiltless and sinless and 100% pure and undefiled. Like it's a requirement. It's the requirement. So just let that sit and feel the weight of that. Because God's word is clear. If we have the stain of sin, we're not a Christian. We're not in God's kingdom. We can't be in God's kingdom with the stain of sin. Look what Pilate says next to the crowd in verse 39 and 40. This is beautiful. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. So Pilate, who just told them he found no guilt in Jesus, is trying to give them another chance to let Jesus off the hook. But let's remember, like he's, Jesus is, or Pilate's not in control here. Jesus is in control. And Pilate says, as is tradition, one man can go free. And Pilate's like, I have Jesus and I have a robber, the other guy. Like Barabbas, he was a thief. The other gospel accounts tell us that Barabbas was a murderer. They say that he was a noteworthy criminal. And so Pilate presents Jesus, the guiltless king of the Jews, and then also Barabbas, the murdering thief. And who did the crowd choose to release? Barabbas. The crowd released guilty Barabbas, and they turned over innocent and guiltless Jesus to be crucified. So get this, the guilty man was set free, and the innocent man, without sin, being Jesus, he was punished. The guilty was exchanged for the innocent. Which leads us to number two. Jesus was exchanged for his kingdom. New City, this is one of the greatest, most profound, beautiful gospel truths that we must get. And as Christians, this should greatly encourage us today. Because just as Barabbas was found guilty as a murderer and a robber, each and every one of us, including myself, are found guilty before God. We each have the stain of sin. Again, we can't enter into God's kingdom in our sin. We can't be under the rule of God's kingdom if we have the stain of sin. The bad news of the gospel is that we're guilty. Yet Jesus was guiltless. But just as Barabbas stood before Pilate guilty, we stand before God as completely guilty. Barabbas was a thief and a murderer and, as his, and his penalty was death. And listen, every one of our thoughts and actions, our words and our deeds, if they go against God's standard, every thought, every action, we're considered guilty before God. I mean, just one example. 
If you've ever desired something more than God, (laughs) we're guilty. I'm guilty. That's hard. But the beauty and the good news of the gospel that never gets old is that we see here is what we see pictured here with Barabbas. Like we're the Barabbas in the story. We stand before God guilty in our sin. But yet, just like Barabbas was exchanged for Jesus, Jesus, he too was exchanged for us. <laughs> Jesus took our penalty that we deserved. We were found guilty, but Jesus took our place. Jesus was innocent. He was, he was innocent. He was exchanged for us who were guilty. And Jesus receives the sentence of death instead of us. And get this, those who place their faith in Jesus are set free as if we've never sinned. We're set free as if we're pronounced not guilty. What an incredible gift. If you've never heard this before, this is a life-changing, profound truth. Jesus took the punishment instead of you and me. And so when we think about the doorway to God's kingdom, this great exchange was the only way you and I could ever walk through the door because of the stain of our sin. So when we die and we show up to the door of God's kingdom, he'll look at us and say, I'm sorry, you're guilty, you can't come in, unless, and that's a really great, much needed unless, unless we've placed our faith in Jesus. And if we have, as we stand at the door, Jesus says to us, says to God, Jesus says to God, I've taken their penalty. They can go in based on my record. They can go in freely as if they've never sinned. If you've never heard that, I want you to know that today Jesus offers you a free gift, like a free gift as a guilty criminal to then be set free. Christian, maybe you've heard this a thousand times. But you know what I know today? We need to hear it again. I need to hear it again. You know why? Because we forget it. We just don't believe it. Maybe we know it intellectually, but you're sitting in shame. You're living like you're still guilty. And you know why we need to hear this today? Because we have an enemy that wants you to believe that you are still guilty and that the gospel is not true. And the enemy wants you to walk around with your head down like a guilty criminal in shame. The enemy wants us to think we're guilty, but you know what? The gospel declares us totally free. Christian, remember the gospel again today. Remember the price of your salvation. Remember that you're no longer guilty, but rather you've been set free. Like revel in that today. I mean, how silly would it be? I mean, just think about this. If someone was sentenced to prison... They were released by their judge, and the judge says, you're free. Your penalty has been paid in full. Go home as a free person. Go home, hug your family, love on your kids, go out to dinner. You have been set free. But how silly would it be if that person just stayed in prison or just kept going back to that prison to sleep or to eat lunch and have dinner in their prison cell? Like, like, no, no. You're free. Go be with your family. Hug your family. Love your family. Eat dinner with them. Be with the people that you love. But yet, that's what we do often. God has set us free, but yet we often want to go sleep in our guilty prison cell. 
And so I'm here to tell us yet again that through the blood of Jesus, our identity is not guilty and dirty. No, our identity is free and clean. This is your identity, Christian. May we not live like a guilty criminal. May we live in the joy and freedom of someone who has been set free. Listen, I don't care what you've done. I don't care how far you think you've gone. I don't care how bad the situation is. In Christ, God looks at you and says, you're free. You know what he says for tomorrow? (laughs) Because of Jesus, you will still be free. That's the gospel. And we need it every single day. And so as we read these next several verses of our story, I want you to notice just the waffling and the neutrality of Pilate as the trial continues. Let's read starting in chapter 19, verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I am no guilt. I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to the law he ought to die, because he was made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. And so what I find interesting here is that Pilate, who has said multiple times, And what we just read, he said that he was innocent. Jesus was innocent. Pilate said he found no guilt in Jesus. And yet in the first verse, it says he flogged him, meaning he whipped him and beat him. He was beating and whipping a man who they thought was innocent. Pilate was trying to stay neutral, but as we see, that didn't work. And the soldiers, as we read, they put a crown of thorns on his head, likely causing his head to bleed uh, and put a purple robe around him, both of which were done to mock Jesus. I don't know if you've ever been mocked, but from what we can see here, Jesus, he knows what that's like. Jesus, he was mocked and he was beaten. And the reason Jesus was sentenced to death was because of the claim of being king. And the Roman officials and soldiers were mocking him for this claim. And they present him to the people and they all shouted, crucify him, crucify him. And why? Because Jesus claimed to be God. And then in fear of the situation, look what Pilate does next, starting in verse 9, just to end our text for today. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at, at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he delivered me over to you as the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the stone pavement in an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation in the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? 
The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. And so that's where we're gonna put a bookmark in our story and pick back up with the crucifixion next week. There's so much in what we just read, but what I wanna point out is what Jesus said in verse 11. Jesus affirms that Pilate has no authority over him, but rather it's God that holds all the authority. And then as it proceeds, everyone shouted, crucify him, crucify him. And as we'll see next week, they delivered him over to be crucified. But the focus I wanna point out today was that Jesus, he was still a sovereign king even while he was handed over to die. Showing us number three, Jesus was crucified for his kingdom. Jesus was turned over to be crucified and murdered, but it wasn't out of his control and plan. This was all part of God's plan. Because again, like we saw in the second point, Jesus had to die in order for the world to enter into his kingdom. Jesus had to take the penalty of all those that would come into his kingdom. Jesus willingly went to the cross to make a way so that he would have people to rule and reign over in his kingdom. Jesus didn't want to be the king of an earthly kingdom. Jesus wanted to be the king of a far better heavenly kingdom. And through the cross where Jesus died was how God made a way for us to enter into God's kingdom. Like all three of our points today, they were all necessary in order for the doorway for God's kingdom to be made possible. We were guilty, but Jesus was guiltless. We deserved the punishment, but Jesus was exchanged for us. And ultimately, the cross where Jesus died was taking our penalty and giving us Jesus' reward. We deserve the cross, but Jesus went in our place. But guess what? The cross wasn't only a payment for our sins. It also came with the reward of God's kingdom. Christian, get this. Like, remember this. In the gospel, we're not just deemed clean and free. In the gospel, when we enter into God's kingdom, it comes with a new identity and a new power. The gospel comes with a new citizenship. The gospel, the gospel comes with a new kingdom and a new king. New City Church, if we have trusted in Christ, just as Jesus said, we are then citizens of a new kingdom and we have a new king. And because of the gospel, we must remember that this world is not our home. We live for another world. We live for a different kingdom. Yes, we currently live in this world, but you know what? It aches us. And you know why? Because we weren't made for this world. I mean, every day we wake up and we experience things that remind us that this world is not our home. But yet in Christ, we have hope that one day we will be home. We have a hope that one day there will be a kingdom of peace that will last forever where pain and tears and sadness and brokenness and wars and division, they will be no more. But until then, we pray and beg God to see God's kingdom come down to this earth in tangible and invisible ways. And we pray and beg to be more like Jesus. We plead for marital and relationship restoration. We get on our faces and we pray for freedom from addictions. We pray for people all over the world to come and know of our King Jesus. And on Easter Sunday, New City Church, we're going to see a visible picture of God bringing heaven down to this place. By witnessing the power of God bringing more people into his kingdom and declaring Jesus as their king through baptism. Again, baptism does not save people. 
It is only a picture and symbol to the world that Jesus is our king and we live for another world. It's a picture that Jesus has new citizens in his kingdom. And listen, if you have trusted in Jesus and you have not been baptized, listen, Easter Sunday is your day. Like, get in the waters. Take the step. And I want to end with this. You know, today we looked at this dramatic trial of Jesus and Pilate, and we saw, Jesus, we saw Pilate claim Jesus not guilty. We saw Pilate try to set Jesus free, but ended up setting Barabbas free, a robber and a murderer. And as we think about this entire trial, we often think that Jesus was on trial before Pilate and his kingdom. And in many ways, yes, he was. But as we kind of take a step back and think about this, it wasn't Jesus who was on trial before Pilate in his kingdom. It was Pilate who was on trial before Jesus in his kingdom. And you know what? Pilate had to make a decision between his own kingdom and Jesus' kingdom. And Pilate, he tried to stay neutral. He tried to stay on both sides of the fence. He thought Jesus was innocent, but yet what did he do? He made a decision with his life and deemed Jesus guilty through his actions. Pilate tried to stay neutral, but he could not. Pilate had to make a decision and waffling wasn't a choice. And ultimately, Pilate decided on his own kingdom and he rejected Jesus's kingdom. And as we think about this for our own lives, the same is true for us. A decision must be made. Are we going to choose Jesus's kingdom and make Jesus the king of our life or we choose our own kingdom and make us the ruler of our life? Because a decision must be made. Will we walk in faith making Jesus the king of our life or will we reject him and keep ourselves on the throne? Because get this, we can't long for God's kingdom and then reject the king. You know, most people often want the benefits of the kingdom of God, but remember, it comes with a king. And in order to be, for, to be in Jesus's kingdom, Jesus has to be king. A decision must be made. And for those who choose Jesus as king, the first step of obedience with Jesus as your king is baptism. It's telling the world Jesus is the king of your life. So what's it gonna be? A decision must be made for each of us in this room. Are we going to be in Jesus' kingdom and live for Jesus' kingdom, or are we going to be on our own, have our own kingdom? A decision must be made. Let's pray. God, you're good. God, I pray for the people in this room right now. God, if there is anybody in this room that has not put their faith in Jesus, God, I pray they would just say to you, God, I want to be yours. God, G Jesus, you're my king. God, would you, would you be the king of people's lives in this room? God, would you save people today? Would we see people respond in faith and go through the waters of baptism and declaring to the world that Jesus is their king? God, I, we're praying for a harvest of salvation and God, I, I'm praying that we would visibly see it in a powerful way. God, I know that you're working and moving. I know that you're saving people. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.